Thanks again, Jason. It's been 13 years since Abram last heard from God. 13 years have passed. He's watched Ishmael become a teenager. He's watched his wife, Sarah, become 90 years old. He himself has turned 99. Uh, The group that travels with him has multiplied. The flocks and herds have multiplied as they continue this sojourn to a land that they know not yet where they are going. By faith, Abram left Ur of the Chaldees to follow God, not knowing precisely where he was going. In Genesis chapter 17, we have a very intricate passage. If you open your Bible to Genesis 17, Klaus Westerman writes, the division of this chapter is carefully thought out right down to the finest detail. It is an artistic composition. I will try to show in limited time and scope in English some of that complexity and beauty. If we could all read Hebrew fluently, we would be bedazzled by this piece of literature. All of God's word is revealed, it's inspired, it's inerrant, but some chapters have a life of their own in kind of a way. And this passage is so intricately written, the language is so exquisitely overemphasizing things we might say for our ear that it just comes off the page. The more I study scripture, the more I'm convinced it is an otherworldly document. Human minds could not do this. Artistic minds could not pull this off apart from God's spirit working in the authors of our scripture. God has appeared to Abram in chapter 12 to leave Ur the Chaldees. He's then told in chapter 15 an expansion of the covenant promise. And now in 17, we have the fullest expression of what this Abrahamic covenant is going to be like. We're going to see at the beginning that God's promises are guarantees. They are guarantees. They're not just these vague, innocuous, religious, spiritual words that God's promising something. It's a guarantee of what he's going to do. Look with me at verse uh, 1 of Genesis chapter 17. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, Walk before me and be blameless. If you're in a community group, you'll have some fun, hopefully, tonight or whenever you meet with this passage, because we'll take you to chapter 15 and 12 and 17 and look at some comparisons of how God speaks to Abram, what he says, what changes in the different narratives is a good study. We're introduced to a new name God gives himself here, God Almighty. Most of you will remember the the songs El Shaddai that use that word. That's where this comes from, that I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. It's the first time it occurs in Scripture. It is used 48 times in your Old Testament, and 31 of those times are found in the book of Job, interestingly. So one of the most difficult books of the Bible of suffering and unanswered questions and injustices in life, and he's referred to as God Almighty. Alan Ross expands the name. Uh, While God Almighty is a good name, there's a lot more to it than we can render in English. He suggests one belonging to the mountain. Now, that doesn't quite roll off the tongue like God Almighty. But the idea is the word usage and what the word comes from is this idea of a mountain that's powerful, that has posterity. A mountain is where God appears when he gives uh, Moses the, the law. The Mount Sinai experience, the Mount Horeb experience, the Temple Mount, the Temple Complex, where Christ occurs on the Mount of Beatitudes. Mountains play a a prominent role in the Bible of where God comes on high as a powerful God, uh, illustrating not only his majesty and grandeur, but immovability. He's stable, he's strong. And so we have this God Almighty, immovable, powerful, bigger than man can comprehend, 
the ideas are much more than just strong or almighty the way we might hear it. Another thing I want you to notice in chapter 17, if we had a red letter Old Testament, you know you have red letter New Testaments, the words of Jesus are in red, which is helpful. Uh, We don't have a red letter Bible technically where all the words of God would be in a different color. If we did, Genesis 17 would be mostly red. What's intriguing about that is in the narrative of Genesis, we don't have a lot of language coming from God. We have sections and segments, but those are oftentimes the Psalms, for example, when the psalmist writes, when God interjects, there are very short phrases in the Psalms. But here we've got a lengthy aspect where God is talking to the man Abraham. So that engenders attention as we read through it. You'll notice I'll emphasize the first person pronouns in my Bible. Another reason I lobby for having real Bibles along with your technology is you can draw in them and color in them and make notes when you're bored. Um, But I have all the first person pronouns circled in pencil so I can see them when I go back the next. Oh, I didn't notice that the first time I read it. Well, after reading it several times, I begin to see it. And so all the first person pronouns are circled. So I go back and capture it real easily. And you obviously make connections and draw lines, connect the dots when you're bored and things. Just entertaining. A friend of mine says, I haven't read the Bible, but I've colored most of it. But when you read scripture, you want to pay attention to the language. And what we have here is a discourse from God that is unusual in the study of scripture. Um, When he speaks to him as the dominant speaker, he's going to reveal himself to him. When God made uh, Adam and made him a living being, he reveals himself to Adam as his maker. He reveals himself to Noah. He reveals himself to Abram. God is the first cause, we might say, in revealing himself to a person. He showed up. Abram wasn't wandering in the Ur of the Chaldees going, I wonder if there's a God. I'm going to study world religions and find God. God appears to Abram and speaks to Abram and calls him out of the context. It's important to understand that when we read scripture, God is revealing himself still. This is not an ancient book left on a shelf for dusty theologians and weird preachers like me. This is God speaking. He is revealing himself to you and to me. There are so many cultural forest fires right now, it's hard to keep up with them all. But one that has caused me uh, some interest has been this growing ag- agnostic and atheistic culture within our, our, our American mindset. A lot of college students, a lot of 20 and 30-somethings are becoming agnostic or atheistic. I uh, don't really know if they understand what that means, but they're using that language. And they're saying, agnosis means I don't know. It really literally means I'm ignorant. If you want to call yourself agnostic, go ahead. Uh, Atheistic means, ah, there is no God. Ah, thea, there is no God. And I've talked with some, in recent weeks, I've talked to some that call themselves atheist or agnostic or they're searching. Um, I'm not angry or mad or I don't think they're stupid for, for getting there. I think more times than not, there is some injustice in their life. Uh, Maybe they were trained as a child to believe certain things and they go off to college and college will challenge your systems. I think part of that's good. Um, But you got to be ready for the fight. You got to know how to, you know, both pass your class as well as disagree. It's part of growing up in life. Um, So we homeschool and protect and insulate and hope we'll do better and it's all bets are off. When they go to that college, things are going to change or or then they're going to get friends that don't believe the way they believed. 
and they're going to hang with a lot of friends that believe very differently. So before long, it becomes tolerant, and this is part of our cultural forest fire, is we can't say something is true if it hurts anybody else or has a negative effect on somebody or hurts my feelings or I'm offended by it. So we're in an interesting time. So when a person says, I don't believe in God anymore or I don't believe what my parents taught me, um, I understand that because there's very little help out there, which is my worn out phrase, don't let the world teach you theology. They can't teach you what he is teaching you. He has spoken, and as my professor often said, he did not stutter. This is not what God would say if he was here. It is what God is saying because he is here. He revealed himself to man. We didn't find him. And if you came to Christ as a child, as a teen, as a college person, as an adult, you didn't discover him on your own. He called you and you responded by faith to that call. He revealed himself to you. And if you don't know Christ, that's okay too. But he's revealing himself to you every time you read it. Every time someone talks about this Jesus. The more I study scripture, the more I am convinced of one immutable fact. That man is sinful and proud and that God is merciful and kind. That man thinks he knows everything and he's, he can say there is no God. And the psalmist says, God laughs. I, I don't believe in your God, Michael. Well, don't believe in my God. Please don't believe in my God. Believe in Christ. Don't believe in somebody's God. Believe in Christ. God has spoken in his word. He appeared to the patriarchs. Conservatively, 300 prophecies were precisely fulfilled when Christ was born. Some will argue 600. Let's cut it in half and say conservatively, 300 specifically were completed when Christ was born. He lived. He died. He was buried to confirm his death. He's resurrected. He's seen by hundreds of eyewitnesses. People who ran away in fear are now speaking out boldly. Life change occurred that is inexplicable apart from the work of God. And when these changes occurred in people's lives, it's, it's hard to argue with a changed life. And if I were to tell you my story of my drug use and licentiousness and idiocy in my teen years, and when I came to Christ, that that stuff went from a 180 of I, I was no longer, I didn't, I wasn't tempted by drugs and alcohol. I might have gotten drunk or stoned three subsequent times after I came to Christ, but the desire was gone. I have no human explanation for that because I have friends who struggled for years and I did not. All I can say is God in his kindness said, easily you're done with that because he knew what it would do to me if I didn't get out of it. I don't have any explanation other than God worked in my life, but an experience does not prove anything. God spoke in the man, Jesus Christ. Listen to Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also the world was made. Packs a punch. God spoke lots of ways through lots of prophets in different times. You didn't listen. He's finally spoken in his son. His son completes the voice. God has self-revealed him to you. To you, When he says El Shaddai, I am El Shaddai. I'm God Almighty. I'm God, the one of the mountain. I'm the one who's powerful. Abram wasn't saying, I wonder if there's a God out there like a mountain. I wonder what my friends would say 
If I believe this, God revealed himself to him. If that were not enough, when Christ ascends, people are still doubting. You remember when he ascends into heaven, some doubted, the text says. And he tells them, I'll send the Holy Spirit. John 10, excuse me, John 16, verse 8. When he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. We often appeal to that, that the Holy Spirit convicts the believer of sin, which is true. But the text says precisely, he'll convict the world of sin. So that still small voice, that guilty conscience, that shame, that whatever you want to call it, that convicts you and me is more than just my moral upbringing. We know right from wrong. We want to push the boundaries, but we know it. We know it when we're two years old and look at our mother and, or father and do something when they tell us no. It's part of our nature. And so instilled in us is this moral conscience that's expanded from a spiritual aspect, and the Holy Spirit will come along and convince us of it. If you doubt for various reasons, I'm not mad at you. I'm glad. If your parents drug you here today, I apologize for them. But I'm not mad at them or disappointed. If you come out of some social custom to come to church, fine. I don't care why you come. I really don't. I care that you come. But I would hope that you would understand what you and I think about God is pretty silly in the perspective of an eternal God who's existed forever, who loves you. I can't convince you of that. No one else can convince you of that. But God reveals himself to you in countless ways. You might say he is even right now through his word. You might disagree with me. That's fine. I will pray for you. He loves you. And when you come to the end of the philosophies and the isms and the ologies that you were taught or changed your mind or opinion, and you have those dark, lonely nights of the soul when you wonder, is there a God? Read, just read John. Read the Gospel of John and see how Christ reveals himself to people. And the way he reveals himself to people has not changed. He reveals himself through his word. Well, God gave Abram two imperatives here in chapter 17, verse 1. They are to walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. It governs the whole passage. He did the same in Genesis chapter 12 when he said, go and be a blessing. The two imperatives were, Abram, go from your land to a place that Hebrews tells us later. He didn't know where he's going. Go and you will be a blessing. Now, years later, he changes it modifies it expands it a little bit and he says walk before me and be blameless walk before me is a idiom it in wisdom literature walk is the way of life halak if you read the proverbs you walk the way of the righteous not the way of the wicked it's all you can't miss it in proverbs it's a predominant theme in the book of proverbs you don't walk the way of the adulterous woman you walk the way of wisdom who's personified as a woman don't walk the adulterous way walk the wise way all through the Psalms, all through Job. Walk is a, it's a process, a way of life. Blameless, the King's English said perfect. That's kind of hard to be perfect. The word better rendered is blameless. It's from the Hebrew stem tamim, which means integrity. Psalm 101 is a great illustration of this passage. It says, I will walk, David writes, I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will sit in a worthless thing before my eyes. 
I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. David makes a proclamation when he becomes king. I will walk within my house in the integrity, same word, of my heart. Great passage. He says, where I am most known and where I am alone is where integrity begins. Remember some time ago we had political leaders saying that what you did in your private life and your private character didn't matter. That you still be a good person even though your character was corrupt. Scripture says quite the opposite. It says if your character is corrupt, you're corrupt. To walk within your house, the integrity of your heart is to, I, I would turn the heat up and say, is to have integrity in your mind. It's what you think about. Where no one else can see into and know. Interestingly, the psalmist says, I will place no worthless, worthless thing before my eyes. This is before the worldwide internet, guys. This is antiquity. And David said, I'll put no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. I want blameless around me. I want integrity around me. It's the same root. I want integrity in my heart. And I want integrity around me to keep me as a man of integrity. God told Abram, you walk before me and you walk that walk with integrity. Benno Jacob, 1800s, wrote a, a Jewish commentary on the first book of the Bible. I love the title, the first book of the Bible. And he explains this term, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. He writes, if you become whole, which is my request, you must walk before me. You must place yourself under my exclusive supervision, guidance, and protection. The image is taken from a shepherd who walks behind his herd, directing it by his calls, or from a father under whose eyes a child walks. But it is more than the walking with God of Enoch or Noah. When questions arise, you shall take direction only from God and be devoted to him without reservation. Hear it again. When questions arise, you shall take directions only from God and be devoted to him without reservation. Do you run to obey? But listen now what he writes. This word does not refer to moral conduct. For that would be too insignificant in the situation because it is self-understood. What he's saying is, this isn't about doing the wrong thing or doing the right thing. It's not about moral conduct. That's too insignificant. You're missing the point. If you just think he's saying, Abram, walk before me and do everything right and don't sin, you're missing the point. That's understood. That's a moral decision. You don't sin, but we do sin because we're sinners. Benno continues, the high demand corresponds to God's, be you mine and I will be yours. This isn't about Abram, walk before me and be blameless and don't sin. It's Abram, you walk before me with integrity because I'll be yours and you be mine. And we begin to see the love that God has for Abram to call him, to make him the father of the group that will bear Messiah in the future. Well, God pledges his promise by giving Abram a new name, verse 2 through eight. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him. 
I love that little interlocution. Abram falls on his face as an act of worship, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Note again the first person pronoun, I, my, me. It's his covenant between him and Abram. We have the awesome nature of God in that Abram is seeing him and hearing him talk. He falls on his face in worship and he explains the covenant further. Now the word covenant is found 13 times in chapter 17. We've talked about it many times. It means to cut. The word berit in Hebrew means to cut something. The idea was an alliance and allegiance. In this case, it's God cutting the covenant with Abram. He can't overstate it. My covenant with you, not our covenant, it's not bilateral. This is my covenant with you. I'm going to make you into this people group. Um, to underscore the magnitude of this covenant promise, he changes Abram's name to Abraham. Now, in Hebrew, if you were to travel to Israel, you will not hear bees, you'll hear V's. You won't be Abraham, it's Av, Avrahim. Avi, Avner, not Abner, but Avi is the way they pronounce it. The B is a V in Hebrew. But English westernized it to a B. Um, the word Av means father, and Ram means exalted or great. And now we have the word Avrahim. Now, there's a word play here. And the word plays are different than just looking up a word to see the definition. A word play has to do with how something sounds. If you look at verse 4, the multitude of nations, the word multitude, that's a word play on the word Avrahim. It would sound something like this in Hebrew, Avhamon Avharin. So Abraham would be the way we'd render it. Abraham or Abraham is the way we would say it. So the word play is, you're not just a father of exalted, you're a father who's multiplied. And it's a word play for the Hebrew ear, which will make a little more sense in a moment. Elmer Schmick, who writes, how would you like to have a last name? Schmick. Elmer Schmick, Old Testament scholar, writes about the word berit, covenant. Two seals are at the same time affixed to this covenant. One for Abram himself, the other for everyone else. And we'll read about that in a moment. The first consisted of the change of his name, Abraham, as the father of a multitude and the change of his wife's name, Sarah, which means princess or queen. By the way, if you're a Sarah and you think you're a princess, you might just have a princess complex. It's a good biblical grounds for that. Because she is now announced as being the destined mother of kings. However, Abram, Abraham might be annoyed to see the hardly suppressed smiles on the ironic faces of his men as he boldly commanded them to call him a name without verification. You go back to the tribe and say, don't call me Abram anymore, call me Avrahim. And they're all sneering and laughing under their breath. And Schmidt goes on to postulate that 
Ishmael might mock his mother, Sarah, for calling herself Sarah instead of Sarai. You think you're a queen? You think you're going to have descendants? All you got's me, which would perhaps be not too far from imagination. Now, don't miss, in chapter 17, verse 1, what's the first thing we talked about? God gave himself a new name. I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. And now he says, by the way, you're Avrahim, and we'll see next week, she's Sarah. None of this goes without notice, not only in the text, but in the hearer of the story. Why does God come along and say, by the way, I'm going to give myself a new name. I'm God Almighty. I'm powerful. I have posterity. I am sovereign. Everything important is going to happen on a mountain in the storyline, so you don't forget how important mountaintop experiences are. We use that as an idiom in our own language. It was a mountaintop. It was a high experience. I'm going to give you a new name, too, because to God, names mean a lot. Because he's having dominion over, an identity over, he's in this case prophesying what will happen with Abraham. In fact, he's saying it in a way as though it's already occurred. Well, thirdly, God requires the faithful to be separate. Look at verses 9 through 11. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and you shall circumcise, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Now let's get all the tittering of circumcision out of the way. Just, you know, get it out of the way, laugh about it, get it out of your system so we can talk about it for a minute. This specific command is going to be a seal to the promise Abram, I want you to walk before me and be blameless. I'm going to change your name to Abraham. I'm going to make you a further confirmation of the promise, a guarantee. And here's a sign, a seal I want you to implement to remember it by, but far more than just remembering it. Um, The identification of the covenant was to circumcise all the males. And we're going to read about some of that detail in a moment. Um, There were other cultures that practiced circumcision in antiquity. This is not like the Hebrews were the first to ever do this. Of course, we have examples in our Old Testament where David uh, talks about the, who are these uncircumcised Philistines who taunt the armies of the living God when Goliath and his group are taunting Israel. Um, But think about what's happening with the circumcision. The promise is coming through a seed. The seed is coming through the man, not to be too specific, but you get the picture. In this case, you have the impossibility of a 90-year-old woman and a 99-year-old man who are well past producing seed or egg to have a baby. Further, you have the aspect of purity and impurity. You're cutting away the old. It's a picture of getting rid of the impurity. It's a literal cutting. By the way, covenant means to cut. What's he want you to do? I want you to cut all the males. Nothing has happened stands in Scripture. The cutting of the covenant mentioned 13 times in here, tied to the cutting of circumcision, was to make a immovable memory for Abram and all Hebrew boys from then on. This is God's covenant promise that he will fulfill. And this is a sign of it, so you remember it. The spiritual circumcision, of course, is the more important issue. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart 
in the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Because before you know God, before you have a relationship with him, you're uncircumcised. Your heart is evil. It's wicked. It's a sin nature. And it takes God to give you a new heart to circumcise your heart is the spiritual picture. Paul refers to it in the New Testament in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So Christ comes to remove our sin nature, we might say carefully, to solve our sin condition, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves because apart from his surgical work on our soul, we cannot be saved. It requires the surgeon Christ to cut away the old. Well, there's a warning to take this very seriously in verses 12 to 14. Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It's a very serious warning here. The instruction is all men, no matter what the situation is, if they're part of the household of faith, their faith is followed by obedience and they should be circumcised. When they're a child, you do it on the eighth day. What happens to Christ on the eighth day? He's taken up, he's circumcised, and he goes to the temple complex. All Hebrew boys were to be circumcised on the eighth day. If they were brought in the family by other means, they were under the same uh, restriction. Jeremiah 9 and Ezekiel 44 both parallel unbelief to uncircumcision. So the question becomes, what in the world does this mean, especially the last phrase, if you're not circumcised, you're going to be cut off. Keep one thing in mind. What's the covenant mean? To cut. Circumcision involves cutting. And now we have this very cryptic and poignant, he'll be cut off from the people. So what does he mean when he says that? Let me read from Gordon Wenham. To be cut off seems more likely a divine punishment resulting in the offender's untimely death, the threat of being cut off by the hand of God in God's time hovers over the offender constantly and inescapably. He is not unlike the patient who is told by his doctors that his disease is incurable and he might die any day. It seems to fill out the passage well. Thirteen times the covenant is mentioned. Circumcision is to cut, to remind them of this promise. It's an everlasting covenantal promise. And if you're not willing to, by faith, be part of that community, you're living in danger. It's a bit of a stretch for us to get there in the Old Testament, but that seems to be a good interpretation of that last passage in the wordplay. Three lessons from the text. Number one, the Abrahamic covenant is an everlasting covenant, an everlasting covenant. Um, that was to be fulfilled from Genesis 12. It's, you could almost say from a human perspective, Abraham didn't have a choice. God was going to do this through and with Abraham one way or another. It's a good thing that Abram followed by faith. 
and he's considered a hero of faith. He's a friend of God because he believes him even when it doesn't make sense. Yes, he has some missteps. We're going to see some really big missteps in the chapters ahead. But he continues to be a man who follows God at his word. He's faithful. But the everlasting nature of the covenant is mentioned three times in chapter 17. And interestingly, in verse 8, everlasting is tied to the land. Some of you might have grown up in traditions where the land is sort of dismissed. I have dear Christian brother friends who believe the land has no part in God's program. Um, I'm sure they don't pray for me. They think I'm wrong. I pray for them to come to the knowledge of truth. Uh, God says in this chapter, in chapter 12 and 15, Deuteronomy 30, the land is part of his program. Precisely what that means, I have no precise explanation. But every time I go to Israel and see that little piece of land clinging onto the Mediterranean Sea, smaller than the state of Connecticut, with no friends anywhere, And I'm not saying the people who occupy it are God-fearing Jews. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that land is a marker in God's program. And he is going to do something in that land, through that land, with that land. I believe Christ is going to return that land. I believe he will reign from that land. And that's why I think you ought to go there before you die, so at least you'll have seen it before. Like those before and after pictures, after tornadoes. You know, What do I before? Go see it before it's rebuilt in the new kingdom. We have read in this chapter, if you caught it, God speaking about some things that have already happened that haven't happened. In verse 5, he says, I will, verse 6, I will make you, I will make you nations. I will establish, verse 7, verse 8, I will. But he continues and says that I have made you. I think in God's mind, time, of course, is not a problem. God's already concluded the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. That's how important it is. It's not going to be stopped or changed. Sin can't stop God's program. Rebellion can't stop God's program. Your and my resistance to obedience can't stop God's program. Secondly, God is the first cause. Or more precisely, he's the sovereign creator and sustainer of all. Um, This past week, I was flipping channels. We have cable TV. We must have 900 channels. Isn't it richly ironic there's not one stinking thing worth watching on 900 channels of programming? Um, so I was flipping. I looked through my DVR. Nothing I was in the mood to watch. I didn't really watch, want to watch for more than about 30 minutes. I stumbled across um, Deepak Chopra. You ever heard of Deepak Chopra? Um, I never watched him. I've seen him on books and whatnot and on NPR, but uh, it was an NPR program, by the way. And so I watched him on the NPR as he talked uh, for about 30 minutes, about all I could take. Um, he was in a church, which was richly ironic to me, with three chairs behind him, like, you know, the Baptist and Lutheran church, the big chair for the, the pastor and the two chairs for the subservience, you know. The choir, by the red, I mean, a real, real ornate church and all these people out there. Three cameras fixed on him. And he talked to this, talked to this, talked to this. It was very interesting. Um, poor production. Anyway, um, <laughs> he starts talking about evolution and science. And he says, he goes, you have to know what the first cause is. That's why I started listening. I said, okay, Deepak, I'll give you some time. Tell me what the first cause is. And he went through evolution. And he jumped from evolution to the Big Bang, which was a really big, broad stroke leap in about three minutes. I said, okay, I'll give you that one. 
Then he went to philosophies and isms and ologies and other world religions. He quoted from the Hebrew Bible. He quoted from the New Testament. He quoted from uh, Hindu writings and so forth and so on. Um, He's a popular broad stroke artist is what he is. That's Michael's opinion. But in each of his illustrations, he said, we have to find the first cause. For science, he argued that the first cause was something before the Big Bang. In ologies and religions, he argued the first cause was man came up with an idea that there's a God. And in his system, he said the first cause is, drumroll, consciousness. Ooh, ah. Okay, explain that to me, Deepak, which he did. And he went to three levels of consciousness. I won't bore you with the three of them. The last one, the third one was, the third final consciousness is, I am God. And in his system of Hinduism and whatever else he syncretistically put together for his philosophies, isms, and ologies, he's saying you have to be aware of who you are, and if you're aware of who you are and self-conscious, you'll, you'll be at rest, you, you'll be healthy, uh, stress will fall off you, and each level of consciousness, you get more and more in tune with the nature and harmony, and I wanted to get in a lotus position and go, hmm, listening to him. Uh, but then he says, but then you find out you're God. And the guy was dead serious. And it struck me, that's his first cause. He thinks he's God, which is ironic because he started out saying there is no God. He started out saying that you can't, you manufacture God because there is no God. Science may push it further and further, he says, but they won't find the first cause. He's kinder than that, but that's what he's saying. And yet he had the hubris to say, I'm God. God is the first cause. Before Adam was born, there was nothing. When God creates Adam out of the dirt and breathes the nephesh, the breath, the soul of God in the likeness of man and creates a living being and a woman for him to to be with and to have children with her and a generation of people who follow. And you're reading a story of Abraham from the lineage of Adam and Eve, from whom Christ will come. Now, you can toss all this out. You can. I'm going to argue God's the first cause. And it's revealed everywhere we look, if we look carefully. He called Abram. He made a covenant promise. He reminded him to follow him. He forgave him again and again. And he is called a friend of God. And he's a hero in the faith. And don't miss, men and women, Islam reveres Ibrahim as much as Jews and Christians do. A different story, but they still revere him as a man God appeared to. Thirdly and last, the final lesson I would give you is that this story is about faithful obedience. It's about, do we obey God? It's so simple, but it's not. At the beginning of the story in chapter 12, he follows him to a place he knows not where he's going. Now he's told, walk before me and be blameless, and I'm going to do all this for you. He's 99 years old and yet to have one legitimate son between the two of them, which will happen very shortly. He waited a long time. Why did Abram obey him? I don't know. More importantly, why do you and I obey him? And something struck me this week. I think we obey out of this sort of nebulous concept that I want to do the right thing and not sin. It's like the stop sign says stop. Do you come to a complete stop in your car? Do you kind of creep through? When the light turns yellow, do you accelerate like most Tennesseans, or do you come to a complete stop when it turns yellow? 
You see, the law is there to sort of, we always wedge it. We always kind of push it. Well, I'm going 76, but people are going 90 past me, so I'm not sinning as much as they're sinning, right? That's the way we view life. So it can't just be a moral code of right and wrong because it becomes very gray. But faithful obedience means I will follow him even when it doesn't make sense. Now, I got to thinking about this this week. And why do we obey? Do we obey just because it's the right thing to do? Do we put your seatbelt on? Do you drive 10 and 2? You're not supposed to drive 10 and 2 anymore. You know that? You're supposed to drive 4 and 7. You know why, don't you? Airbags, yeah. If you're up here, you might hurt yourself when the airbag blows up and kills you. So you want to be down here when the airbag blows up and kills you. (laughs) Oh, how far we've come. Uh, But you're, you're following the law. You're driving a certain way. Because I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to get hurt. That's a crummy reason for following the law. It's self-evident, as Benno Jacob said. But let's think about it a different way. I love my wife. I love my children. I love Cindy differently from our first few years of marriage than I do in our 35th year of marriage. In our first 7, 8, 10 years, I was a pretty much selfish uh, beast of a man. It was me and a trophy woman. And my life was fine. When I started learning, no, it's about dying to self and putting Cindy before me and caring for her and loving her lavishly as possible and, and so forth and so on. And I've grown in that to the point now that I love to spoil her. Um, there's not anything, that's really not hyperbole. There's not anything I won't do for my wife. Not anything. It wasn't that way our first few years of marriage. I'll do something for her if she'll do something for me. Quid pro quo. I'll do something for her if something else might be in it, right? No, I'll do it for no reason now just because I love her. And it's not the emotional crazy love we had when we were dating and married. It's a different love after 35 years. I'll do almost anything for her. No, I'll do anything. Now, I won't do anything for my children, but almost anything. It's different. They're free agents. I'm glued to this one, but they're free agents. My second daughter, Jessie, um, knows purses, and I don't know purses. Um, she knows purses. She could walk in here and say, oh, that's a fake one. That's a real one. That's so I mean, she can, I mean, 30 yards, she can identify a purse. And I'm like, you're, you're just making this up, Jessie. She, she, it's, it's weird. It's just weird. So two Christmases ago, I said, I want to get your mom a really nice purse. That was my first mistake. I had no idea what a really nice purse cost. I mean, a guy's wallet's 12 bucks maybe 25 for a really nice wallet and you're going to keep it for 15 years right guys so it falls apart i mean that's what a wallet's for that's what a purse is for no we need 96 purses anyway so i take jesse to the store and i had found one i liked she goes oh no dad don't get that one okay get this one all right so we look at it i'm oh okay and of course the sales lady of course says this is the purse to buy it'll last a lifetime blah 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 i never spent that much money on a set of luggage for 20 people but you know what? I got it. I got the money. I love my wife. I trust my daughter. She is a little extravagant, but I trust her. Okay, let's get that one, Jesse. So we get it and wrap it up. Unbeknownst to me, Jesse is working behind the scenes with her mom. No, 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 no. no not like, listen, listen. And she, she's prepping her mom because she knows what her mom will do. Her mom will want to take it back because it's too expensive. And she'll say, I don't want that expensive of a purse. So Jesse's working behind the scenes with her mom saying, Mom, 
dad got you something and you need to receive it. And that's what she told her. You need to receive it. I didn't know anything that was going on pre-Christmas, but that was what Jesse, she was really working. It was, I should give her some more money. Uh, she was working this really well. Mom, you need to receive what dad gave you. So she opens it up and I mean, she's like aghast, you know, and she goes, how much does this cost? And I say, well, you know, blame Jesse. And um, you know what? I love doing it. I can afford it. That's not the problem. Is it extravagant? Yes. Is it unnecessary? Sure. Do you do that once in a while? Yes. Once in a while you do that. You do something extravagant for somebody you love. You know, every time I pray, what do I say at the end? Lord, we love you. Help us to love you well. There's a difference in loving God by being obedient and loving God by running to him. God doesn't want you to avoid sexual immorality just to punish you and torture you. He wants you to love him more than this world because he's more fulfilling than this world. He doesn't want you to be so materialistic and focused on the here, now, bigger, better, new, more that your happiness is is predicated on what you earn, possess, or build or have because he knows that won't last. But he knows that his relationship with you is otherworldly fulfilling. Be you mine. I will be yours. Obedience, we need to move away from the doing right and wrong and 10 and 2 or 4 and 7 or seatbelt or 70. We need to move away from obeying God because it's the right thing to do to saying, I love you. Of course I will do what you ask of me because it's for my benefit, it's for my good, and I love you to demonstrate that. The sexual immorality, the pornography, the same-sex attraction, whatever the world's telling you, it's a lie. It will not fulfill. It will not satisfy. It will not satiate. It will always leave you hollow. It's not do's and don'ts to make you better. It's a relationship with somebody who will love you in such a way that you wouldn't think but doing what he wants. And not to make a prosperity pitch about it, but he'll bless you in ways I can't, I can't explain. But you will see it change in your life when you understand this world is not my home either. That this stuff is what I have to handle, to give, to use for good. That my role in this is very small, his is very big. And that I'm here to serve a king, not be in a cog, in a wheel, or be my own king. Faithful obedience is more than just doing the right thing in the right way. Faithful obedience is love. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Was he saying, do the right thing and not sin? That's the moral baseline. He's saying, do you love me? Because if you love someone, you seek their best. If you love someone, you put them before you. If you love someone, a sacrifice is no big deal. If you love someone, of course you would do that for them. Because that's how we express our love. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of scripture that was given centuries ago. That Abram was called, became Avrahim, became a literal father of nations and kings and princes. And from that lineage comes the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, the mighty one.
the Almighty One. We thank you that you love us with a love that's inexpressible and undefinable in our human vocabulary. But you loved first, you called us when we were quite selfish and quite sinful, and you have brushed us off, given us a new life, called us to yourself, given us an inheritance we do not deserve, but nonetheless you've granted. May we live like people who are otherworldly, enjoying the things of this world, yes, but loving you more. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.